morning, as Pastor Dan said, we are launching into a new series called The Ancient Future. Just look at that. Just admire it for a second, because he made it. So, Ancient Future Church, an alternative community. So I said that at our pre-service meeting, and the first response I got was, what a mouthful. (laughs) It is a bit of a mouthful, but you got to admit, it's really cool. So let me explain this series, okay? So we didn't choose it because it was cool. So the ancient future church, what does this mean? Why would we call this the ancient future church? As far as we can tell, we've only been in this building six months. It's beautiful. Uh, One of the professors that Pastor Jade and I have had at Denver Seminary says that all good theology is done from the middle, meaning that it's like the, the baton being passed that in Christianity, the baton is always in the hands of both people. It's a perpetual baton pass, that it is never just in our hands, that there is always a younger generation and people coming up behind us. We are always passing on and stewarding the church. And there are always those who have been at this a really long time who are beginning to look backwards and their hand is still on it. Their hand's not any less on the baton, but they are stewarding and training and raising up. And the church lives at that place. The church lives at the place in the middle, at the baton pass. And what does that mean for us? That means that we don't get to make this thing up as we go. (laughs) That doing church, yes, we do make decisions, but we are following in the footsteps of faithful believers that have been doing this for 2,000 years and making right decisions and making wrong decisions and learning, hopefully. We, it is our responsibility to be learning from the past in order to steward this thing for the present and for the future. So the ancient future church speaks to that. It speaks to this church is ancient, but as unless Jesus, as Chase said, until Christ appears, we're gonna keep doing this. And you're welcome to do it with us. <laughs> but in all seriousness, the church is at, at both, at the same moment, it is both ancient and it is both future. So, so that's the first half there. And then an alternative community. Community is such a buzzword, right? Man, anyone under 30 years old just, I'm 31, so I'll say 31 and under. Everyone 31 and under, we just, oh, we love community. We long for community. But I'm afraid that community, as described in Scripture, is often different than what we have in mind. And so that's why I titled this message an alternative community. So this message, this series is going to go through the end of October, and we're going to start really broad. We're going to start with big picture church stuff, and then we're going to move and inch our way into Antioch Church. So Antioch Church distinctives, eventually, at some point, This is the gateway to church membership. We've never had church membership, and we're still fleshing out what that's even going to look like. But what we knew we had to do was we have to teach on the church before we can ask people to sign a paper or commit or whatever we end up doing, wherever we go. It is our duty to, to teach you what it is to be the church faithfully. Okay, a few disclaimers here right up up front, things that have to be acknowledged. One, anytime we're going to talk about the church, we have to recognize people have been wounded by the church. That there are many, many people in this room, probably every one of us, if we've been doing this for a long, if this is not your first Sunday in a church, you've probably in some way, shape or form been wounded by a church. 
And, and so I want to be very sensitive to you. I know that Pastor Jade and Dr. Green next week um, are going to be, we are going to do our best to be sensitive to the fact that, the, that talking about the church, it's not all hunky-dory. It's not all just fun and games and everybody's perception of the church is not positive. And we want to say first that we recognize that and that we are sorry for having participated in that at times. It is very difficult to not wound people in ministry. If you're doing community well, and if you're doing community like the Bible tells us to do community, it's almost nothing but problem solving, and almost nothing but reconciliation and resolution between people. It is so much of that. So we wanna say, first, we recognize, and second, we want to do our best to become the kind of people who are not perpetually wounding other people. Amen. Amen. And we have elders that agree, so that makes me feel good. <laughs> we want to make their lives easier, right? That, and that, that is not easy to do. So right up front, I just want to say that we are going to be talking about things from our perspective. We can't really do it any other way. And there is no perfect way to do church. Paul sends all these letters out to the different churches at Corinth and Ephesus and Colossae and the Roman church. And, and every one of them were different. Every one of the books is different because the people are different and the way they were doing church was different. So I just also want to say, disclaimer number two, that we're going to speak to you from our perspective and we can't help that. But we're going to do our best to speak faithfully from scripture and faithfully from the ancient church as we know it and understand it. Obviously, there are many forms of church. It is so common today to read articles. Somebody sent me one this week. Um, of people who are either leaving the, the formal institutional church for house church or leaving charismatic church for high church for liturgical church or leaving the liturgical church for the charismatic church. And there are a million reasons that people make these decisions because we're, as one of the songs this morning that we sang said, we're all children on a journey. As Jason Upton has often said, in following Christ, there are no experts. We are all always beginners. And because of that, we're all having to make choices, especially in a city where there's what, probably a thousand churches in this city, that there are many different ways to do church. So we're gonna do our best to speak dogmatically about the things that are clear and dogmatic and not the things that are what we like in our opinions and our perceptions. So we're gonna try and do that. This is just, that's disclaimer number two, okay? So what is the church. Eugene Peterson says that today the church is the appointed gathering of named people in particular places who practice living a kingdom-oriented life. I'll say it again. The appointed gathering, so very specific, of named people in particular places who practice living a kingdom-oriented life. So if you've, if you've, read any theology or even the creeds, um, you'll realize that there is a church universal speaking to the church, ancient, future, past, present, everywhere at all times, everywhere a believer is, the church is present. That is what we would call the church universal. But then there is the church local. 
And most of us are prone to wanting to adhere and, and always lean toward one of those more than the other. And it usually hinges on what's convenient for us. That, oh, well, the church is, I, I am a believer, so I am the church. Or people can tend to be very legalistic, and it is all about the Sunday morning gathering. And we're going to dive into this over the next 10 weeks or so, but the church is both. The church is the church universal, but I think in our culture, we have to emphasize that the church is particular people meeting at particular places. Those particular people have names and stories and gifts to the body of Christ, and the specificity is necessary for us to do this well, okay? So HJ's got a slide, our first slide. This is the first half of this is going to be really teachy, and then it's going to get a little more preachy, okay? So I hope you guys are okay with that, because um, if you're not, just suffer through for the next 25 minutes, okay? So the objectives of this series, as Pastor Dan, Pastor Jade, and I came up with them, there are five of them. So the first one is to understand the nature and the purpose of the church. If not, what are we doing? If not, why are we here? Why do we give two hours? Because look, I'm going to tell you, if you don't understand this, there's a lot of churches with shorter services than Antioch, Okay. So if we don't get this, why come at all? And if you're going to come, come to a shorter service. So we're going to talk about this. What is it? What is the church's purpose? Why does the church exist when it could just as easily not exist? We have to think about this, that God chose the church to be the primary vehicle of his activity in the earth. He didn't have to. He's God. He didn't have to design it this way. But he did for reasons that we're going to get into. Number two, objective, to understand the function and the mission of the church. So let's just insert here, what, what is the church to do? Like if I am a member of a church or attend a church over the long haul, what should begin to take shape in my life? And what should the fruit of our church eventually over the long haul look like? It's because if there is no fruit, then once again, quit coming to this or any church if there is no fruit. I will assure you as a full-time pastor on staff, there is fruit in this church. And hopefully you see it in your lives and the people around you. Number three, objective number three, to understand who comprises the church and what it means to be a member. This is very central for us because like I said, we could just talk about the ethereal church universal which really doesn't apply to me in any way, shape, or form other than just to say I'm a part of it. But there's no indications to my responsibilities or what I am called to, the way that I am called to my neighbor, the way that I'm called to the person sitting next to me. So that's number three. Number four, to discern how our culture has shaped our understanding of the church and how it differs from the biblical and theological vision God has given us. This is incredibly important. We have to realize that, and I'm going to get into this here in a few minutes, and I talked about it in our pre-service meeting, that God's ways are foolish to the world. That the church is, that doing what we are doing right now, think about what we are doing. You guys came here for two hours to sing to and about a God you've never seen. And the only way you know this God is through witness You've witnessed to his activity in your life. You've witnessed to his activity in other people's lives. None of you have ever seen him. And yet we dedicate 
so much of our time and money and really orient our entire lives around this thing called the kingdom of God where Jesus is at the center, that is foolish and it is countercultural. And we know that, but we have to begin to really look at the things where Christ is teaching and moving us in this way, and it rubs raw against the common sense wisdom of the world. We're going to talk about that a little bit today, a lot next week. And then lastly, the last objective here is to envision or imagine the kind of community God is calling Antioch to become. And this is exciting. This is, this is where we begin to discern Okay, so this is what we know about the church anywhere and everywhere. But what is God calling us specifically to be different from the church? Literally right over there, right? And the three other churches that are at the corners of this major intersection. What is it that we are called to that they might not be called to? There's many, many things that we are all called to. And we're going to touch on those. But there are some distinctives. What are those things? Well, we're going to begin to explore those things in this series. I think before we can really jump into scripture and before we can jump into the meat of this message, so most of the preliminary stuff is done, introduction is done, we have to realize that every one of us are wearing lenses on our eyes and on our ears when we hear anything about God, about the Bible, when we read the Bible, when we hear anything about the church. And and I want to say, there's nothing wrong with that. We can't not because we are creatures. We are not the infinite. We are not the transcendent God. We don't see the world objectively. Every one of us see the world, read the scripture, see our church. Every one of us has a different opinion about Antioch because every one of us sees from a different perspective. Every one of us, when we read uh, chapters like 1 Corinthians 11, 12, and 13, every one of us have a different lens that we're reading that through. And so we have to We have to be aware of that. We can't do away with it, but we can be aware and be aware of what our propensities are personally, but as as well as what are the cultural propensities. We're reading a text that the newest text is 2,000 years old. The newest text in this book is 2,000 years old. If you think you can just quote unquote read the plain Bible, you're mistaken. You can't. For one, we're all reading translations of at least three languages, okay? But even then, from there, there are idioms, there are, lang- there are all kinds of discrepancies. I mean, how many transla- English translations are there on your Bible app on your phone? And if I, to- if I picked a verse at random and had you read it, it would say something hopefully very similar, but it would not say the same thing. This is just something we have to be aware of. We can't do without it. We can't take our lenses off. If we do, we'll be blind. And as Paul says, we all, every one of us now, see as through a glass dimly. We all see in part, which is part of the reason we need the church and we need this series, because none of us see the entire thing as it truly is, okay? So what are the big picture lenses that we tend to view the church through? The first one is the lens of pragmatism. Pragmatism basically is just the elevation of efficiency and what quote-unquote works. What works? What gets the job done? It's the, the old adage, the end justifies the mean. Pragmatism is a lens that we have to realize we are prone to seeing through that lens. When we read scripture, when we look at the church, when we think 
uh, about what the person sitting next to us, the decisions they should make in our life, we are prone to thinking in that way. We are prone to thinking what works, what's most efficient, do that. That is the lens of America, right? And so we almost can't help it, but that is not the lens of the kingdom. There are so many things that we read in scripture that God, in my opinion, he could have done a much easier way. He could have been more efficient. He didn't have to wait 2000. He didn't have to wait all these years to send Jesus. He didn't have to wait 2000 years to come back. A matter of fact, while Jesus was on the earth, there's a lot of things he should have done differently if we're looking through the lens of pragmatism. The second lens, and I've only got two, there are probably dozens. The second one, and this is one of Pastor Dan's absolute favorites, is the lens of individualism, which fails to recognize that scripturally speaking, Individuals are for the body and sees, or excuse me, excuse me, let me, let me rephrase this. Culturally speaking, individualism fails to recognize that individuals are for the body and sees the body as useful to the individual. This is what individualism, individualism does, is it sees all entities and all other human beings as resources for my betterment. And if it can be mutually beneficial, wonderful. But that's not really a requirement. That's not really a necessity. I hope it's good for my employer, but really all I care about is getting the raise that I know I deserve. You fill in the blank and, and keep going. And we do this with church. So those are the two lenses. I just want to make us aware of them. We can't get rid of them today, but the more that we can identify them in our thinking and in the way that we read the text, the better off ultimately that we will be. Before we begin let, this is the last thing, but now we're into the meat of the message, okay? Before we begin with really what the church is, and we are going to spend a lot of time in Scripture today in the next 20 minutes, I want to talk about what the church is not, okay? This is in part meant to be provocative, but I, sat, I actually spent a lot of time reading and thinking about what are the most common perceptions of what we view this place and this space to be when we come, particularly on Sunday mornings, not limited to Sunday mornings, but particularly when we come to this place and when we think about the church in the city, the church at large, what do we tend to think of the church as that it is not? First, a club or an association. The church is not a club or, hey, oh, I should have told you, we'll do them one at a time, but now you guys are all distracted. Um, the church is not a club or an association in that the church is not a place where we gather around shared interests. The church is the place where we gather around, does anyone want to guess? Shared identity. Oh, isn't that, that's such good, come on, that's good preaching. Yeah. <laughs> We gather around shared identity in the church, not shared interests. In this place, and please do not raise your hands, okay? We will start unnecessary drama. I guarantee you, we have people in this place who are Republicans, Democrats, independent. I guarantee you we have people in this place with differing opinions on gun control, on immigration, on the military, on defense budget, on... I could go down the list, maybe even sexuality, gender and sexuality. There are definitely various opinions in this place. And if this cannot be a place where we gather to have those conversations, because we recognize that what we just said is that none of us sees the entire picture, right? If we can't welcome 
all of those perspectives into this place because of our shared identity in Christ, then we are not doing church. Then we have a club. If everyone in this place votes Republican, this is a club. This is not a church. If everyone in this place agrees on, well, we might agree that the Denver Broncos are the best NFL team, but aside, but you get the point, right? You get the point. We are not a club. Randall, man, I was like five seconds late, bro. I love that it's a place we can do that. Um, so we don't gather around shared interests or ideologies. The only thing we have to have in common is that we have been engrafted into the family of God by the work of Jesus Christ. That is the center of the church and the center of our faith. The next, uh, the world's moral police. This one is a little touchy and a little provocative, but I am not afraid to go there. The church is not to, called to be moral. The church is called to be holy. There is a difference. Morality is the culturally accepted standards of what is accepted, right? Morality is set by the principalities and the powers around us. Holiness is established in Christ. God alone is holy. The church is called to be holy. Because if the church is called to be moral, Jesus was just about anything but. I'm not going to say Jesus was immoral. But Jesus could have cared less about the moral standards, which is what got him in trouble. Who were the moral police in Jesus' time? Tell me. The Pharisees. The Pharisees were the one people group that Jesus continually rebuked over and over and over again. Yet throughout history, the church has attempted to be the world's moral police. That is not what we are called to do. We are called to be holy. We are called to be like Christ. We are called to care deeply about certain things, but we are not necessarily cared to call, uh, called to care about what the world says we should care about. We might. Sometimes those things overlap. I'm not saying holiness and morality are mutually exclusive, but they're not the same thing, and we have to recognize that. Next. Thank you, HJ. You, you fixed it, man. The church is not a self-help group. The church is not a means to an end for our personal betterment or growth. And I think this might be, this one or the next one are the most prevalent. The church is not the place that we come to learn to become self-feeders, okay? There was a church, a mega church, I'm not gonna use the name, number of years ago, 10 to 15 years ago, they did a study, I think it was a Barna study in their church, it's that large, 20,000 plus. And what they found were that their life groups, I don't know what they called them at the time, but the, thing, the, the groups that met in homes, not on Sunday mornings, those people were not growing spiritually, so they put tens and tens of thousands of dollars into a campaign, and their campaign was to, quote, make self-feeders out of our church members. Guys, that is not what this is about. This is not about you eventually not needing the church because you are so spiritually mature. We don't want you to become, and, and it's not for pragmatic reasons because we need your time and money. It's because God created us to be interdependent. And that maturity is knowing and being able to discern what God is doing in a community, not just your own life. Spiritual maturity requires the community. So if we approach this thing from the vantage point of this is a self-help group, we're missing it from the very get-go, okay? And the last one, and this is very, very similar, a resource for spiritual development, 
okay, this might, in our, in our charismatic stream, this might be the most prominent. And this is just slightly nuanced differently uh, than, than the previous one. Um, but this is not the place that you come to fill in all the gaps in your life. Like this is not the place where I'm really bad with finances, so you need to offer Financial Peace University for me. And if you don't, I'm going to the church down the street. That's not what the church is about. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do those things. Please hear me. There are grains of truth in every one of these, but none of them wholly, not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y, are the truth about what the church is called to be. Okay, so let's jump into what is the church. And for this series, the church is an alternative community that witnesses to the kingdom of God by living in light of the resurrection. I'll read it again. You can see it in front of you. An alternative community. So it is a community, but it's a different kind of community. Why? Because we're not anchored on shared interests, but on our shared identity in Christ. It's an alternative community that witnesses to the kingdom of God by living in light of the resurrection. Man, that's powerful. That was a combination a little bit from me, but mostly from Eugene Peterson. Okay? So if you like it, yeah, I'll point you in his direction. <clears throat> So, um, that's so cute, little kids. There is a temptation that we must address also. And I know I'm saying things and then there's caveats. I'm saying things, this is the introductory message for the whole series, so I have to do this, okay? The temptation for us, people, specifically people my age, is to fetishize or romanticize community. Okay, we're going to be talking about what it is to be an alternative community. And oh my gosh, it is, I just, I want community. I want community in my life. And you should, but to be honest, you probably want it in your life for the wrong reasons. Because biblical church community is always disruptive to our personal desires, it's disruptive to our privacy. It's disruptive to our resources. It's disruptive. It's inconveniencing often. Okay, I'm not, please, I should rephrase that. You don't all want community for the wrong reasons. I do, just me. I want community for the wrong reasons, okay? But we must not romanticize what this is. And we're gonna get into the text today and we're gonna talk about some of this, but we don't wanna just leave here with this idea that like our church is gonna become the best church. Well, for one, best is not a theological category, okay? So best doesn't, best doesn't even make sense. But this is going to be a difficult journey. We have to realize there's gonna be personal confrontation. I don't mean from me, I mean from the spirit, from the text, from the word. This will be provocative. And for most of us, it'll be on different things. Certain things are gonna hit certain people different ways, but we must not fetishize or romanticize it because point number two here is we cannot romanticize or fetishize the New Testament church. It is too easy for people to go, oh, I just wanna get back to the church of Acts. Have you read that book? <laughs> I just, I just, I'm a New Testament church guy, you know, I don't, I'm not really about X, Y, Z, you fill in the blank. Have you read this text? This text is filled, it's littered with almost nothing but people doing things wrongly, aside from Christ. 
and the Lord coming behind them and having to correct mistakes. That is all the Old Testament is. And the New Testament, every letter Paul writes, but the book of Ephesians is written to a church or an individual presiding over a church to address a problem or a problem that's on the cusp of being a problem, something he sees. Have you ever thought about that? Every book but Ephesians is written to address a problem. And all I want to be is the New Testament church, you know. Now, obviously speaking, we, we get much of what we do from reading about the New Testament church. But we cannot romanticize it and act like we have, we are so far from where they are. Guys, they dealt with so many of the same issues that we deal with on a regular basis. That should be comforting to us. That should be consoling that we can, we can go to the text and we can say, after study, it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit. Because like, they did that while they were choosing the 12th disciple after they drew straws, you know? Okay, let's move on. So I want to move to uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. I'm only going to be preaching here for about another 10, 12 minutes or so, but I want to drive this point home. Uh, I'm going to just begin reading. Verse 18, 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, man, Paul is confusing, did not know him, God was pleased that the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which I'll just insert, Paul didn't say this, but is neither. Okay? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strengths. What is Paul doing here? Paul is painting a very convoluted picture that Whatever the world expects and what the world demands, what is common sense and common wisdom to the world is almost always not God's way of doing things. It is almost always not God's way of doing things. And his governance of the kingdom of God is always at odds with the common sense of the empires of this world, okay? Um, Paul is driving home that common sense says following Christ who was crucified and we believe was resurrected is foolishness. It is foolish. Like I, I said in the beginning of this message, what we have done, what we are doing right now, the fact that we believe that God can be speaking anything through what I'm saying is foolishness. That we believe that a text that is 2,000 plus years old, that God still speaks to us from these ancient stories, that's foolishness. That is foolishness. So, for the church, what we do is foolishness. Saying that we are witnesses of a kingdom that is present, but you can't see a lot of it yet. Like, think about how that sounds to the world. That is foolishness. It's foolish for us to... and. and I'm using foolishness, you know, in two ways. Hear me, hear, just as Paul was. It's foolish to the world, but it is the way of God. 
It is the way of God. That for us to do what we are doing is the way of God. And that is what it is to be the alternative community. And that is what makes alternative alternative. So community, let's start community and then we'll move to alternative. Community is God's way of working in the world. God works in individuals for the sake of communities. I'm going to say that again. God works in individuals for the sake of communities. And probably what you're feeling is, "Uh uh-uh. But let me show you. Abraham was called out for what? To be the father of the faith, to bless all nations. Okay? Joseph went through all kinds of crazy stuff. Eventually, to have food for the famine in Egypt and save Egypt and Israel. Joseph, was, was his life worked in by God? Yes. Abraham, was his life worked in by God? Yes. For what? For the sake of greater community. Moses, Esther, same thing, to deliver Israel. They were called, they were anointed. They were moved on by God for the sake of the community. Samuel, Saul, David, we could keep going. Samson, uh, Gideon, all those figures in the book of Judges and then 1st, 2nd Samuel, Chronicles, Kings, they were all moved on by God for the sake of preserving the kingdom of Israel, right? John the Baptist, John the Baptist, Jesus said, if ever there was a righteous man or if ever there was a holy man, it is John the Baptist. John the Baptist's whole mission was to provoke the community into somehow trying to be ready for the kingdom of God coming through Christ, right? John the Baptist's whole calling personally was to disrupt the community, but he was called to the community nonetheless, right? Mary bore the ultimate disruption in her body for all of eternity, like the eternal community, past, present, and future. Mary was called out for the purposes of the church, for the purposes of community. Even those who Jesus healed, think about this, almost every healing in the gospels that Jesus does, we physical healings, casting demons out, all of those things, almost every time he was making a subversive point about welcoming a particular people group into his kingdom that had been ostracized by the Jews. Almost every healing that Jesus does in the New Testament gospels. Jesus, yes, he is healing the individual. It's not less than that. It's just more than that. That Jesus is making a statement, welcoming people, saying previously lepers were not welcome. Heals the leper. What is Jesus doing? He's validating lepers. Lepers are the least of these and they are those who are seated at Christ's right hand. They are the ones who are welcome in his kingdom. Women, women who were bleeding I mean, the list goes on and on. I'm not going to belabor this point, but you understand. God works in individuals' lives. And it is always, of course, for the sake of the individual. Nothing less than that. But it is more for the sake of the community. The destiny of every one of these figures that I just read was tied to the future of the community. Think about how much we tend to think about our personal destiny. Guys, our personal destiny is tied to Christ and his body. And I'm not trying to minimize decisions that any of us make in our personal lives. They, they are real and they matter. They really matter. But they matter most because they affect other people. I could get into a whole teaching about sin right now, but, and I'm not. But the whole thing that is so bad about sin is that it wounds other people. It's not a personal affront to God. 
That, that's a teaching that we, we believe God is offended. God is offended because sin gets between you and your neighbor and you and your spouse and you and your kids and the people you work with. And it disrupts community in a bad way, not in a John the Baptist way. John the Baptist disrupted to reveal what was broken in the community, right? So God works for the sake, in, in the lives of individuals for the sake of community. A verse that we all like to talk about in the evangelical church is the priesthood of all believers, right? First Peter 2, 5. We totally believe in that here. But what are priests for? Priests mediate on behalf of others. We usually use that verse as a means of excusing ourselves from community. That I, I'm part of the priesthood of all believers. I don't need you to help me hear Christ to help me hear the Spirit and discern what the Spirit is doing in my life because I am part of the priesthood of all believers. Well, there's an element of that that's true, but what Peter's talking about, the priesthood of all believers, is that you are on some level accountable for the people around you before God. That's what the priesthood of believers is all about. It's not about an excuse to be apart from community. It's about shoving us into community in the deepest way possible. It's about intercession, really. The priesthood of all believers is about intercession. It's that Seth is a mediator before God for the people around him right now. That's what the priesthood of all believers is all about. So next time you hear that, you can, you can teach somebody something. Um, we're going to skip a few passages here just for the sake of time. But, but the book of Ephesians, like I said before, Ephesians was written as a, the best picture of the unity of the church and the church of Jesus Christ. So go, I would encourage you over the next 10, 12 weeks, however long we're in this series, to spend some time in Ephesians. And what you'll hopefully, well, now that I'm gonna say it, you're gonna pick up on it. What Ephesians alludes to over and over and over again is this point of our destinies being tied up together. That our destinies are tied together in Christ, that together you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And together, that this is the deposit of the Spirit for you all. It's all plural, and it's all tying us together as the body of Christ, essentially saying, we're all in one body anyways. If you think that in the end, it's gonna be a private relationship with you and Jesus, you're gonna be very disappointed because there's gonna be a lot of other people there in your space. Okay, I'm just telling you. So read the book of Ephesians with that in mind. So let's move to alternative here and I'll be wrapping up in the next 10 minutes. What kind of community is God looking for? We are gonna turn here to Ephesians 4, 22. And we're gonna read through 5 to Ephesians 4, 22. What kind of community? That's the question we are asking. The alternative community of God, we said witnesses to the kingdom of God, right? That, that Jesus is known by witnesses. None of us have ever seen Jesus. We know him by being witnesses to events and to other people, okay? So with that in mind, here we go, Ephesians 4.22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Let's just push pause real quick. Paul speaking about falsehood right before anger. What is falsehood? Falsehood is putting on a false representation 
of yourself to the community is what he's talking about. Paul is saying, like Ananias and Sapphira, why were they killed? They weren't killed because they were an affront to God. It's because they were putting on an image of themselves being more bought into the community than they actually were. They were attempting to deceive God and the people of God. And that gets God ticked off. All of these lists in 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Paul goes on about sins. You look, every one of them has to do with how they affect the community. So we're going to keep reading. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing, who do you steal from? Other people. Must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, and the list goes on. We'll stop right there. Isn't it interesting that this verse about grieving the spirit is right in the middle of a list Paul is giving of commands of things that you should not do and what they all have in common is they confront in a negative way the community of God. These are, this is a list of things that Paul is, is saying, don't do any of this lest you grieve the Holy Spirit. And what do all those things have in common? They harm the people around you. That is what grieves the spirit. Is when we come into a place like this and all we're concerned about is ourselves. And I do want to put another disclaimer out there. That part of what it is to be the body of Christ is to make space and make room for those who are in such a terrible time in their lives that they, they can't not be all about themselves. They're lucky to have just got here, to made it into the building. Part of being faithfully the church is being to bear those people and not wound them more and be able to harm them. So if you are in a place like that and you're like, look, I can't not be selfish right now. I just have a lot of needs. There is grace for you. But there is also coming a time where the roles will be reversed and you will have to bear someone else in you and make room for Christ to work in them. Does that make sense? So this alternative community, at the end of this passage, Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. How do we imitate God? I want to submit to you that what Paul is referring to and how we can imitate God is living the cruciform life. Cruciform is just the fancy theological word that means modeled after the cross. Modeled after the cross. So if you would, this is the last verse here. 1 Peter, let's look at 1 Peter 2. We're going to read a few verses, 21 through 24. Whoops, I'm in 2 Peter, guys. Sorry, one second. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That following in this way that Christ has done this as an example for you is Christ, while on the cross, did not retaliate. Was he 
Was Christ innocent? Yes. Did Christ have the quote unquote right, the common sense right to retaliate on the people around him? He absolutely did. But the way of Jesus, the cruciform way, is he absorbed their sin into himself that they might find healing. Think about that picture. By his stripes, we are healed. That because Jesus did not retaliate, he stopped the cycle. Jesus broke the cycle. And instead of uttering vengeance at them, he uttered forgiveness at them. And that is what it is to be part of a faithful community. That we don't keep records of everything that everyone in this place does wrong. And we're not the quickest person in the room to confront somebody when they say something wrong to us. But we have to become a people who can learn to prayerfully intercede for those people and to bear their sins and say, Lord, I know that they didn't mean this. And I know that they're unaware that it it hurt me in this profound way. But God, by your grace, would you break the cycle and bring healing to them that that kind of sin, that that kind of affront would not come out of them any longer? Would you give me that kind of grace? That's what it is to be a people who are formed in the image of Christ. That is the alternative community. So um, communion attendance, if you guys would come. And Seth, if you could come play for us, man. I, I, for the second time in a row, failed to ask somebody here at the end. I'm going to leave you with a quote from none other than Eugene Peterson. And he says, God could have sent his son into the world to turn all the stones into bread and solved world hunger. He didn't. He could have sent Jesus on tour through Palestine filling the seven grand amphitheaters, amazing crowds with supernatural performances, impressing them, but he didn't. He could have set Jesus up to take over the positions of governing the world politically, but he didn't. What did God do? He sent Christ in the form of a helpless infant to a family in poverty, on the run, and on the fringes of society. Jesus never left that world He never left the world of being vulnerable or marginalized. So then, how did God birth the church in the book of Acts? The Spirit descended on a small minority womb of 120 men and women in the upper room. And that miracle womb was vulnerable and marginalized. Church, if you hear nothing else today, hear that when you are sinned against, and when you are vulnerable, and when you are marginalized, you are in company with Christ that you are in company with the living Christ. And we are together learning what it is to identify the way culture is trying to shape us in its image and push back with this image, to push back, absorbing the sin. What do I mean by absorbing? I just mean not retaliating, not repaying evil with evil, right? Absorbing the sins of the people around us into our being that we might bear healing for them in Christ. Now, of course, we could go and I could go into all kinds of disclaimers about abuse and things and all of that aside, I am not talking about that. But as a community centered on Jesus, we have to be that kind of people, okay? So as we come to this table today, in, in just a minute, I'm gonna read a short passage from Luke 24. I want us to be thinking about the people that are around us and to be thinking about the ways that God is working in their lives. Be thinking about how God is using you 
as a gift to this community. And I don't necessarily mean in specific ministries. I mean you and your essence, you and your identity are a gift to this body. I don't mean what you do, I mean who you are. And think about how God has gifted you to one another. So if you would stand.